Welcome to Hearing Your Side, a podcast for friendly conversations about controversial subjects. I'm your host, Brad Miller, and our final topic this season is abortion. My guests are Julia, who's a community health advocate, and Lynn, who's had a personal experience with abortion. We discuss Lynn's story, the healthcare system, sex education, planned parenthood, women who regret abortions, the role of men in the conversation, defining the unborn, and adoption. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and please stay subscribed for season two. Hello, Lynn and Julia. Hello. I want to thank you guys both for agreeing to this uh, because it's a topic that is sensitive and sometimes heated, but I also feel like it's pretty shallow. And when we were talking in the lead up to this, I got the sense that both of you kind of felt like the terms pro-life, pro-choice can reduce it down to almost like a stereotype. So I kind of wanted to go around and get everybody's self-definition, you know, so that I'm not uh, just putting a label on you or whatever. So Uh, Julia, I don't know if you want to start. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I probably for like the ease of identification, I would fall into the pro-choice bucket that most people are familiar with. Um, But I do think choice is a pretty limiting term because it assumes that everyone has access to the same choice. And I I just I don't think that's the case a lot of times. Mm. Um, I think it's pretty complex and there's lots of different, you know, individual and social and spiritual factors that we all bring to the table when we're making choices around abortion or other aspects of sexual health. Yeah, and I like that because it does often seem like if you're pro-life that you don't like choices. And I I feel like that's one of those, yeah, like you said, it's pretty limiting. Um, So Lynn, uh, how would you define yourself? I don't don't want to put labels on you. Um, So I agree with a lot of what Julia just said. I would also fall into the pro-choice area. But as I have grown and learned more and had to have made that choice on my own, I've actually come to feel like I care more about life than people that are living. Mm. Um, Not just the unborn, you know, I'm anti-war, I'm anti-violence, I Mm. try to just love people. um, (laughs) So like saying that I'm like pro-choice and I don't belong in the pro-life group, you know, it just has a nasty sound to it. Like, I don't care about life or, right, or other yeah. beings, and that's just not true. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like both sides uh, probably feel like the, the conversation needs to be broader than just that term. And so I, I, I actually found what you were saying, Lynn, very interesting leading up to this, that you felt more pro-life now than you did when you were growing up and you had that uh, view. And that, do you want to talk a little bit about how your view has changed over time? Um, sure. So I was brought up in a, what was to be considered a Christian household, Mm -hmm. um, which I later like just realized that what I believe Christianity to be today is not that, Mm. um, I was brought up in a very judgmental now I see as a racist, Mm. uh, sexist church. And, um, and that is like where most of that family falls into line too. Okay. So that was just like a term that I didn't know anything about that I just would shout along with other people. Like, like yeah, pro-life. Oh, yeah. you're evil. If you if you get an abortion, you're mm-hmm. a murderer. And mm-hmm. I remember doing a debate in high school and we had to pick, you know, topics. And one of the girls picked pro-choice. And so I you know, did pro-life. And that's when I started researching it. Mm-hmm. And but looking back, the things that I had discussed in the debate, it was like all just, it wasn't the truth. You know, showing pictures of like almost full-term babies mm. being ripped out. And, so, and it's like, that's not what's actual, like, at least for like most of the time. Most abortions, it's not late-term abortions. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't giving an actual visual or side on the reality of what abortion actually looks like. So can you walk us through kind of, um, okay, you have this early belief that's kind of sounds like it's more from the people around you. And yes. uh, so how does that uh, morph and evolve as, as you get older? I don't feel like it evolved until I had to make that choice. Okay, yeah. Um, that's actually like I used to say I was pro-life until I needed to make the choice. Okay. But in my opinion, it didn't like I didn't just become pregnant and say, oh, I need to terminate this pregnancy. That's mm-hmm. not what it was like. It was a 
you know, all of my years leading up to that, what I had learned, my experiences, my circumstances, like Mm -hmm. Julia pointed out, I was low income. I Mm. had been sexually harassed since sixth grade, just like a lot of traumatic events. My parents were drug addicts. Oh, wow. Um, And before I had the abortion, I did have three other babies, actually. Right. Okay. (laughs) And like, literally, I had a son and then... A year and a half later, I had twins, and then I got pregnant within like six months of my twins being born. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't, it's just not as cut and dry as like I decided yeah. to have an abortion. I made some irresponsible decisions. Sure. But there were a lot of things that led up to those irresponsible decisions lack of sexual education, lack of parenting, lack of income, lack mm-hmm. of stable people in my life. Um, you know, my first pregnancy, actually, my significant other wanted me to abort the baby. Oh, really? The baby. Okay. And I was against it. And I thought, well, you know, he thought it would ruin our lives. And we were just getting ready to go to college. And so I ended up leaving him mm-hmm. and being pregnant on my own. And yeah, I had my son and everything was great and ended up meeting some guy. And, you know, he seemed so wonderful. And <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I was irresponsible. But after basically one time of sleeping with him, I got Mm. pregnant with twins. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And after he found out I was pregnant, he took everything I had and left and tried to kill himself. Jeez. Okay. Yes. Like literally emptied out my bank account. And I found out he had done so many drugs and wrote like a suicide letter. And like, I didn't know he was a drug addict Mm. when I became impregnated Mm. (laughs) and Ever since, basically, I was pregnant, he had been in and out of prison and not doing anything to take care of his children. Sure. No kind of support for the mother. Same with my my first child's father. Now, my first child's father is very much in his life today. Mm -hmm. But for the first year, he denied that it was his. He, Mm -hmm. you know, like wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so yeah, so here I am raising three children with no help, yeah. um, mm-hmm. babies nonetheless, like, right. you know, breastfeeding three babies and oh like, <laughs> um, just like once again, low income, unable to work because I need to take care of all these babies. Mental right. health is like out the window. Po- I have postpartum depression. Uh-huh. I had complications during my pregnancy with the twins where I was hospitalized. So for me, like all the things leading up to it, it's like, I couldn't physically hold another baby, probably. Mm. <laughs> like, health-wise, I was scared of that. I was scared of continuing to have no mental health support, continuing to have no financial support, mm-hmm. um, lack of family support. Yeah. Um, so it was basically just me and these three kids. And so once again, I meet a guy. And, yeah, this guy was older. He was like 50 something and oh, wow. okay. I was in my 20s and yeah. I thought, "Oh, well, he's mature and yeah. <laughs> he's he has grown kids and he has a business and, you know, he was wealthy and this is going, you know, this is going to be good for me." Like, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't just another guy that was going to run off it seemed like. Yeah. We dated for a few months and when I found out I was pregnant, I called him. We were still dating at the time. And he told me, you better get an abortion or I will take the baby from you and that it was over between us. Mm. And I was just kind of in shock, I think, (laughs) you know, um, because here's this like stable man who, you know, it wasn't like it was going to be a financial burden on him or something he hadn't, you know, right. Like he he loved my, well, he didn't, I'm not to say he loved my kids, but he hung out with my kids, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. So once again, irresponsible decision, you know, I didn't have a positive upbringing of like what it looked like to be in a relationship or, right, okay. yeah. you know, my mother would bring different guys home all the time and sure. uh, come home from the bar and stuff. And so it's like, I didn't have that. And then school didn't have that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you told somebody that a guy touched your butt or something, they would just be like, boys will be boys. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, just, just take it. So I feel like it was like. A lot of different reasons. Like, I wasn't taught what a healthy man, like, a healthy relationship looks like. Hmm. I wasn't taught how to be in a relationship um, to where, like, making smart sexual decisions. Um, I wasn't taught to get on birth control or 
how to use a protection Mm -hmm. (laughs) or anything. All that lack of knowledge just led to this point in my life to where I had nothing. I had no support. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so when he said to do that at first, I like thought, no, I'll, I'll just have it. But then I thought, I don't, I don't have it in me to take care of my three babies I have now mm-hmm. and be pregnant mm-hmm. alone, right. um, financially, health-wise, or mental health. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to die at this point. Right. And so for me, I think at that exact point, it was more about being able to be a mother to the children I already had mm. because I was already struggling with that. I ended up going to Planned Parenthood, and I had a friend escort me. And, you know, outside of the place, it was just, you know, probably like 20 to 30 people holding signs, calling me a murderer. And, and like, you know, here I am making one of the hardest decisions of my life. And, you know, and it was at three weeks. So, like, that's the thing. It wasn't like just like, oh, I was seven months pregnant, made this decision. It was like I was three weeks pregnant. I thought that was the best decision that I could make at that time mm-hmm. for my family. Yeah, and when you talk about those protesters and picketers and things that you saw, had you ever been in one of those groups before? I know you did a debate, you said, uh, where you were on the pro-life side, but had you ever been in that side and now the role had reversed and now you were seeing the other side of the coin? Um, Not on this particular issue, no. Like, I was never into... Like, I didn't get involved in the protests until more recently uh-huh. uh, with social ju- justice stuff. Does that affect um, your, your view of protests because of how you no. saw that protest? Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, I think each protest uh, warrants its own, you know, I don't think all protests are the same. I think yes. calling, yeah, I mean, it altered everything for me of what I thought a Christian looked like. Because even if I was, even if I considered myself a murderer, I'm the one who has to live with that, not mm. those people. Mm. Um, they're pointing the finger, and, and in the Christian like thing that I thought was, was that you didn't judge other people, that you didn't point the finger at other people, that, mm. you know, especially if it's not law. Okay, if it's law, do, but it's not law. Like, it right. is legal for me to do this. So, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, I guess. Yeah, no, I've, I never uh, was involved in the picketing or protest thing, but I kind of just wanted to see how that made you feel because I always get the sense that it doesn't really do a whole lot of good when you're shouting. No. I mean, I, I yeah. fully agree with you about, I don't think that this is a uh, a Jesus-approved uh, technique of no. talking to people uh, necessarily. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, yeah, I don't know why people think that screaming at somebody is going to get them to see their side. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and that's where I wanted to maybe draw Julia into the conversation because, Julia, you have volunteered at Planned Parenthood before, right? Yes. So I've either interned or volunteered at three different Planned Parenthood affiliates. So one in oh, wow, Pennsylvania, okay. one in Massachusetts, and one in North Carolina. And I remember when I was a college student in Massachusetts, I would take a bus you know, from my dorm over to the Planned Parenthood every week. And mm-hmm. there was a, I assume a man who dressed up like the Grim Reaper every, oh, nice. I think every Wednesday or something like that. And that is the, you know, image that would greet people wow. at that particular clinic okay. when they showed yeah. up for healthcare. And that greeted the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, the volunteers, and some patients who were really scared. And that sure. was, you know, it's, it's, it adds to the trauma. It adds to the challenging things that people are going through. And to be quite honest, a lot of people come to Planned Parenthood for reasons other than abortion. They come for, um, you know, birth control, cancer screenings, a number of different things. And um, it's really hard because they are such a safety net provider for many people in the community that wouldn't otherwise have a place to turn. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, I agree, it's, you know, challenging to see. I, I always get frustrated when I see people protesting outside of a clinic space because I just think on a practical level, couldn't that energy be spent better in another way? You know, if you truly are concerned about, you know, a woman's ability to make choices about her family planning, there are so many single parents out there who could use help and support, you know, like holding the baby, bringing them new meals, like helping, you know, uh, raise money for diapers, you know, things like that, because we there are so many women who don't have what they need to support the families that they want to have. And I just, I I think there's a big part of me that wishes people would spend their energy in a different way that is maybe more compassionate 
and mm. more supportive and less judgmental because it doesn't seem like yeah. it's doing <laughs> making a difference. Right? Yeah, no, the word support has come up so many times from both of you. And I feel like that's a thing that I'll be honest, when I've had conversations with friends about this who are on the other side, I will talk about the unborn and I will not talk as much about the support and what women go through and those kind of things. And I feel like that has happened a lot in this conversation is a sense that it is about babies versus women. You know, I don't know mm. if you guys feel the same, but, you know, in this conversation I recently had with a friend, she even granted, okay, well, let's grant that the unborn is an innocent life, is an innocent human life and, and should have all the same rights as everyone. Um, there needs to be support for women going through these things. And I realized that I'd spent all this energy thinking about the unborn and almost no energy thinking about the the mothers. And uh, I, I'm just being honest. I had to admit that. And then I spent a lot of time thinking, boy, I, I do have this kind of lopsided, you know, and hearing, mm. hearing both of you, I feel like there probably is some middle ground where, uh, I mean, I, lo I love what you said there about energy being spent. Um, what, what specifically programs do you think that both pro-life and pro-choice people would support that would maybe help less women feel that they need to even consider abortion or those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I know everyone comes out on things different ways and, and it's hard when people, you know, have certain issues they feel strongly about. But I think, you know, for me, the root cause of abortion is that it's a symptom of much larger issues. And I would say for me personally, I don't know if, if everyone who would identify as pro-life feels this way or not, but I think... Sure. We, we know that we do not have health care figured out in this country. It is not in a good place. Like no matter how you land about what it should look like, mm -hmm. the current state is not good for most people. Um, yeah. And that's putting it very mildly. But I think we really need to have a better health care system. I think, you know, a big piece that I, I work in professionally right now is around maternal health and mortality. And the rates for especially black maternal mortality are astronomically high mm. in our country. And if you are a pregnant person in this country and you are not pregnant by choice, you are essentially putting your life on the line, you know, by being pregnant in our country because the healthcare system is not adequate. And um, there are, you know, documented cases over and over again of, of healthcare providers not listening to women and not listening to pregnant people. Mm. And I think until we can fix that, it is not fair <laughs> to, to, you know, uh, force someone to be pregnant against their will if they're not able to, to do that because it's, it's dangerous for many women, quite frankly. And that's, um, I guess that's my number one concern. So I would love to see mm. us really figure out a way to fix our healthcare system so mm -hmm. that people can be pregnant and get through their pregnancy, have access to prenatal care, have the ability to, you know, get to their doctor safely. And, and after the baby is born, that first trimester, is the, they call it the fourth trimester, the first three months after the baby is born is really critical for both mm -hmm. mom and baby for bonding and for health concerns. And um, one of the leading causes of maternal mortality in our country right now is mental health and suicide. And the fact that mothers are committing suicide because they are not getting the support they need should be a huge cry for help. Mm -hmm. And I think there are people who are starting to address that and, you know, we're trying to fix things in that system, but it's, um, it's so big. It's a, mm -hmm. a bigger issue, you know, in terms of, um, where do you start and where do you fix things? So sure. I'd love to see healthcare, <laughs> healthcare reform for sure. And I, I do think we, we also are struggling right now and we're seeing this with COVID is, that childcare is a huge um, issue for people in this country. It's not affordable for many people. Mm -hmm. There's a shortage of childcare providers. And so, you know, if, if we are um, wanting to support people and having more children, they have to have a good pathway for childcare and mm -hmm. they have to be able to afford it and have safe childcare. Um, so those are, I think there's many things, but those are the two big things to me um, that stand out in terms of like supporting families and the children right. that are out there, you know? Right, yeah. And Lynn, you had mentioned education a couple times in there, too. Um, yes. And, and you felt like that you had had some failings in that area. And that, that's something that I, I hadn't considered, too, is what, what do you think in terms of better education would you support? And what do you think you would get buy-in from pro-life people even on, like, in terms of education? Yes. Um, so, I mean, in my experience, in the people that I've spoken to who are pro-life or consider themselves pro-life are also, like, very anti-sex ed and discussing mm -hmm. any kind of sex with children or teenagers um, whereas, like I stated before, m the first time a boy sexually 
harassed me, touched me was in sixth grade on the school bus. Mm -hmm. And after talking to many other women after being an adult and opening up about these things, um, come to find that almost every other woman I know has had things like this happen to them. Mm. So not only just like sex ed, but like sex ed, consent, like respecting boundaries, like I feel like should be taught in middle school, mm-hmm. if not elementary school, like maybe yes. even starting in elementary school. Like my children are 11. We started talking about like sex and bodies and all those kinds of like real life things early so that they know, like they know not to go and like hug on somebody that asks them not to. And that is so important. I think you could get pretty universal buy-in on something like that, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like, sadly, a lot of women that come and speak out about these things, once again, the people in my experience who are pro-lifers, who I try to have a conversation with these things about, Mm -hmm. if you speak out about being sexually harassed, it's almost like I'm called a liar all the time. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. you're just making it up. Oh, you just want you know, attention. And it's like, no, I don't. I, I want it to be known that this happens and it happens often. Mm -hmm. And so that leads up to this like traumatic upbringing for women and not saying it doesn't happen to boys, men as well, just in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're not getting that at home, if you don't have good role models at home or people who are willing to teach you about sex and not just telling you not to have it, like my mother's favorite line was no drinking, no smoking, no hanky panky. Um, <laughs> I love it. But she didn't teach me anything. Like, right. That's, you know, can't fact, stop at like a line, said, right? <laughs> yes. It, it was definitely a catchy line, um, but it didn't stop me from exploring any of those things because um, mm-hmm. she didn't teach me and neither did the school. Like the only thing I remember about anything that had to do with sex was watching 16 and pregnant, <laughs> like wow. with okay. Kirsten Dunst or something on Lifetime. <laughs> um you know, there just wasn't like discussion. Meanwhile, almost everybody in my high school was having sex. Right. And like, it, it, yeah. And a lot of women being sexually assaulted, harassed, nothing being done about it. So that leads to like, in my case, further trauma to where I don't know who to trust and pick abusive men and Mm. just not leading a healthy life, basically. Yeah. And it's hard. I think, you know, what Lynn is alluding to is it's, it's, it's really hard, certainly in Pennsylvania, because it's very fragmented in terms of what people receive in terms of sex education in school. Mm. Every school district makes its own choice about what to include and what ages and what content. Mm-hmm. And so some school districts have, you know, what I would consider a really good comprehensive curriculum that includes all the topics that Lynn is talking about, birth control, consent, Mm -hmm. um, healthy relationships, and some are very, very minimal. And Mm -hmm. so it it could change from year to year. So it's really hard to know what youth and young adults and teens are learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that would be great if we could agree on some kind of standardized sex education curriculum that covers all the bases, but it is hard because that's also in addition to abortion, a touchy topic for people. And, and I, I'm a parent, like I understand, like, I understand people who feel like, well, I want to control how this is messaged to my child and, Mm -hmm. you know, consent into those things. And, and I think, again, it's like the case of in a perfect world, (laughs) families would take care of this conversation and they would do it well. But I think we are not many of us are not taught how to have those conversations because they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of parents who don't have the tools and equipment to have the conversations in a way that um, sets their kids up for success. And so the kids who don't have supportive parents or parents that might be dealing with other issues like substance abuse aren't necessarily in the mind frame to provide those tools for their children. And so then mm-hmm. we're left with the consequences down the line, you know, and, and right. those kids grow up and they have, you know, hopefully they can make a good decision, but they might not have what they need to make the right decision. Yeah. And I kind of want to dig into where that feeling comes from amongst people, you know, who say, I don't want, you know, I don't want abortions, but I also don't want this type of education or I don't want to support these type of birth control programs or whatever it is. And I, I, I was exploring some of those feelings in my own self because I was like, you know, there's a certain part of me that gets a little icky feeling around being forced to pay for things I don't agree with. I mean, I'm sure that Mm. comes up with everybody. You know, everybody, if it comes to, you know, military or, you know, your tax dollars (laughs) going to a war that you don't support and things. And I kind of find myself struggling with that a little bit because I see a little bit of both sides of that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a difference between taxes and and practice, too. I Mm -hmm. mean, 
I think, like you said, there's lots of things that people in the United States, we do not all agree on many things. Mm -hmm. And yet our tax dollars do support many things that we might not individually agree with. And I guess in Mm -hmm. some ways, that's the beauty of America, that we're all (laughs) very different. But it's hard because it's hard to make a blanket law or statement that everyone is going to support. But I think, you know, for me, I want to look at like, what's the public health impact at the end of the day? And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, if we at least I would, I would hope that we could all agree on like, we would want to reduce disease transmission, like HIV and STDs. I I don't think there's anyone who would argue Mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and we know that condoms work, we know they're effective, um, there's science behind that. I I think, I hope at this point that's not too controversial, but, (laughs) but it still is. I mean, we don't have condoms in prisons. We don't have condoms in schools, uh, most of the times. And, um, those are high risk areas where we know people are going to engage in sexual activity and we know that condoms are a pretty common sense, cheap, effective tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we can't agree on them, people don't always have access to them. Hmm. And so that's that's really hard because uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what it will take. You know, I mean, I think we see things yeah. like we, we see the, the things that we're really concerned about. And it's kind of a, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> if you're concerned about abortion, then you have to at least give some way on condoms or sex education or something because you can't have it both ways. It's just, um, it's not realistic. <laughs> also, abortions are not paid for by tax dollars. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think there is mis- yes, misinformation I, about that. I feel like there is a ton of misinformation spread around. I was low income and paid about $400 for my abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, everybody says that they're paid for by tax dollars and they're not. Yeah, the- they're yeah, not. the only time every state is different too. And Lynn and I were talking about this before. And, you know, that's a big concern that people have about, you know, abortion services being paid for by the government. And so right now, so in nineteen seventy-three is when Roe v. Wade was passed, which legalized abortion in the United States. And a lot of people I think are familiar with that mm-hmm. rule, mm-hmm. um, the Supreme Court ruling. And then a few years later, I think nineteen seventy-six, there was an amendment that was placed on that ruling called the Hyde Amendment. And that prohibited um, federal dollars, specifically Medicaid dollars, from being used for um, abortion services, except in the case of endangerment of the mother um, or the health and safety of the mother, which, mm-hmm. again, is kind of potentially a gray area. You need a physician to make that call. Um, but that's really the only provision right now. I think something like 36 states follow that provision. And then um, I think South Dakota is the one state that... Um, I think there's also a rape or incest clause as well, but mm. South Dakota is the only one in the U.S. that prohibits federal dollars from being spent for abortion services um, only in the case of the like true life endangerment of the mother. And then there are a few states, like California is one of them, that don't follow those rules. They kind of make their own rules. But mm. in Pennsylvania, anyone who's using federal like Medicaid, Medicare, CHIP, like Children's Health Insurance Program dollars, they can't use that money to support an abortion unless it's the case of the the mother's life is at risk. Okay, right. And Lynn, you were saying that this is a, a misconception that you've run into and, and it wasn't true in your own situation. Yes, that is what I hear all the time from people is that, you know, they don't want their tax dollars spent on abortions. And just like, look, if anybody was going to get the free ride back then, it probably would have been me. <laughs> I was a low-income single mother with three children um, and I had to come up with that money. Mm. And yeah. How did you come up with that money without getting too personal? I mean, that's uh... <laughs> um, the father or I don't even know if I should call him a father, but the man mm-hmm. who impregnated mm-hmm. me, um, he offered to pay for half of it. And then I believe I borrowed some off my mother, I want to say. OK. Um, yeah. And there's controversy around Planned Parenthood being defunded. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think that intersects with that issue. There's an assumption maybe when you just hear it. It's like whenever you go into the voting booth and they say, do you want to agree to fix the pipes in your community or whatever? And you're like, are they bad? You know, like you don't know. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's this term thrown around like defund Planned Parenthood. And I thought just on the surface, going back to how labels fail us, just on the surface, I thought, well, that's because they use tax dollars for abortions, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then looking into that and seeing this information about the Hyde Act and these kinds of things, that isn't actually the case, I guess. Yeah, it's um, just from working professionally with a number of those affiliates, I know that they have to go through a pretty 
strong accounting of their books to keep everything separate. They keep say, everything. Right. It must be. Yeah, they have to, they get audited. <laughs> they have to make sure that, you know, they're spending the money the right way, um, which is good. You know, they should, you know, be under that scrutiny mm-hmm. if, if those rules are in place. And mm-hmm. I think for the most part, they, you know, they do a good job and try to balance like, uh, you know, serving as many people as they can, but also, you know, staying able to open their, keep their doors open. And so I think, right you know, they have a really hard line to toe. And what happened last year in 2019 is that, um, so there's a, a provision called Title X funding, which is used for birth control for um, women who are low income. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Trump administration added a provision, which is sometimes called the gag rule, which basically said that if any any clinic, whether it's Planned Parenthood or not, wants to take advantage of Title X funding, so that would be funding for affordable birth control or free birth control for patients, they cannot talk about abortion at all. Like even if they don't provide it, they, they cannot like a physician who works Uh in the clinic is not allowed to talk about it as an option. They can't refer women for abortions. Mm. They can't discuss it at all. So I think there's a lot of um, healthcare providers who feel like truly they are being gagged by the government Mm. because they are not allowed to discuss the full range of options with their patients. Is that because it's almost like a separation of mm -hmm. church and state, it reminds me of, where it's starting to feel like, well, as soon as you get into the areas that are very divisive, you know, people's beliefs and things, you can't be federally funding, you know, certain opinions in that area or something, something like that, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it really limits physicians and healthcare providers' autonomy, and I think um, so. As a result of that, Planned Parenthood is not accepting Title X funding because they want to be able to give the full range of services and and truth and opinions to their patients, you know, and not hold things back from them. Hmm. Um, so that's a, it's a hard ethical call. I think for them, they feel like it's morally uh, not within their their value system to not mm-hmm. give that information to patients because. I think the big thing, and we haven't really talked about this, but mm-hmm. the reason why people are advocates for safe and legal abortion in the U.S. is because there was a time before abortion was legal when women would turn to illegal abortion. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of women who died and were taken advantage of. And, you know, from, you know, what people might call back alley abortions, there were whole wards of women who would be in like they called them sepsis wards mm-hmm. because they had. Mm-hmm terrible infections. And I think that's the thing, certainly for me, that I would never want to see our country go back to that time of, um, self-inflicted, of women. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to t- touch with Lynn real quick about something you had said was that in addition to the protesters and things, you know, not really helping the situation, you had an experience that sort of turned you around because of a, a, someone who was more loving in that regard. Can you talk about that? I found that really interesting. Yes, about a year after my abortion, uh, maybe less than that, like I was calling everybody in my family, asking them for support, asking them to help, not financially even, just Mm -hmm. to like, you know, let me sleep or, (laughs) you know, come hold the baby or whatever, or to like come sit with me so I had somebody to talk to. And I made it around to their, their father's mother, who I barely knew, and that's just how desperate I was, and... She said, I can't help you, but you can call their great aunt and uncle because he has a ministry and I think that he'd be able to help you. And I called this man that I never met. He drove five hours to come meet me, um, brought me and my children into their household. I mean, they're their blood relatives, but I don't think that would have mattered. We didn't know them. Um, And just like took care of us and taught me how to be a mom and taught me how to be a friend and a daughter and a, you know, Mm. student, you know, able to learn and unlearn all the bad things I've learned. Um, Yeah, I just just completely transformed my view on everything, you know, completely different than my upbringing. Um, Yeah. I was, it was almost like they mothered you. I mean, I remember yes, yes. when I, mean, I was a new mom, they would people would say like, "Who's gonna mother the mother?" And that sounds like what they gave you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They, right. I mean, they were like the parents that I didn't have, and and it was it was mm-hmm. like truly amazing. And like to to call him like my pastor, and to think of like the person who supposedly was teaching me about God when I was growing up right. as a pastor. Like I can't even like fathom them being the same title. <laughs> Like, like this man growing up, I had a black boyfriend in middle school and he told me God didn't want 
you know, white people to be with black people. Oh, I forgot that verse. Yeah. Yeah. Half of his congregation was black, but I wasn't allowed to date outside of my race. Interesting. Wow. Like, that's not godly to me. Like, that's not interesting. Christianity. Like, isn't it interesting? The spectrum there. Yeah. And then like taking everybody's money and spending it on his own, you know, going golfing all the time. Whereas like, you know, my pastor today, like, brought me in, brings people into his home, feeds them, clothes them until they are, like, able to go out on their own and help mm. other people, you know, do the same for somebody else. Like, wow. like, that is what the Bible means to me, not all the stuff I learned growing up, memorizing scriptures and, mm-hmm. and you know, songs in church. Like, Yeah, I just found that so fascinating because I think it does reveal... You know, obviously it reveals the diversity of types of people in the country. Like Julia was saying, we have so many types of people, all different views, all different beliefs. But even within the, the church, you were given multiple <laughs> portrayals of God and uh, and love and things yes. like that. Yeah, within the same supposed denomination. It's just like yeah. really like eye-opening to me, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah. Um, well, I feel like we're on a pretty comfortable uh, term. So I, is it okay if I ask some, you know, semi difficult questions, maybe turn to some stuff that might be a little bit more touchy when women feel regret from abortions? Cause you do hear this sometimes that they're, Mm. and I, and I have no idea the statistics. I mean, Julia is rattling off statistics so impressively that I'm just going to (laughs) concede anything she says, but, um, what do you feel about that now, Lynn? Cause you know, do you feel like that's misplaced when, when a woman has regret? I think it's um, more about shame. I think it's like shame that other people like make me feel that I need to have. Mm. Just the fact that I was already a single mother when I became pregnant again, you know, to me, I'm like ashamed to tell people that because of all the judgment I've received in the past and the judgment I see other women get. Mm. And, you know, and the kind of unfairness of not seeing that really on the men and like not hearing much about how the men, what men can do to help like Mm -hmm. stop impregnating like women (laughs) that don't want to be pregnant and that they don't want to take care of a baby. You know, so I might have thought I felt regret at the beginning, like because I was I was so confused, like. My whole upbringing, I thought that it was against everything, but everything in me knew that I had to do this, like that I didn't have what I needed to like go through another pregnancy and on top of that, raise another baby alone. Like I didn't have it in me. And so I feel no regret about it today. Um, I know I did what I had to do. And I mean, ever since then, I had become more careful. You know? <laughs> like I, I am now married and even being married, we are careful mm. <laughs> to not get pregnant, you know? So, but as Julia said, having access to ways to not even being married, even if we had like all the money in the world, I wouldn't want to have like 15 kids. Like, so we have <laughs> to have ways to not have children, <laughs> like right. like birth control and condoms. And but yeah, I mean, right, right now I have no regret, just nervous about other people judging me. Okay. Yeah, so and that's where a lot of the nervous feelings came from leading up to this. I know you were saying. Yeah. So you think a lot of that is brought in socially. It's not a... Yes. Okay. I mean, for myself, at least. Mm-hmm. No, uh, no, sure. I can't speak for everybody, but yeah, of the course. people that I know are mostly like, hey, it's something that happened in my life. Like, most of the hurt around it was the guilt and shame and people mm-hmm. judging mm-hmm. me. And, and yeah, that makes you feel like crap. <laughs> and I think it's hard too. I think, you know, what Lynn is speaking to is that a lot of times, like we talk about choice, but there's no right choice for every single woman because every pregnancy is different. And there are times when people feel kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, because if you become pregnant and that pregnancy is not socially acceptable for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's you've had more than one father for your children or um, your age, you're younger or you're older or whatever the case might be. If you carry that pregnancy to term, you face social stigma potentially. And that Mm -hmm. is uh, something that a woman will have to deal with for nine months or more. Mm -hmm. And in addition to, you know, if there are financial barriers or mental health barriers, whatever there might be, but if you choose to terminate the pregnancy and that's something that you disclose, you're also, you know, subject social stigma. And I think this gets back to, you know, the issue of this is a burden that women or pregnant people have to carry. And, Mm -hmm a lot of times the men are not carrying that simply because they are not the ones going through that physical experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, that's hard, you know, because I think there are, uh, you know, good men out there and good partners and, um, 
you know, people who, you know, again, in the perfect world and the perfect relationship, they're a great support and they can make those decisions as a team. But that's not the case for everyone, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. And I do want to talk a little bit about men in this conversation, because something I'll hear a lot is we shouldn't allow men to make decisions about women's bodies, Some, something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of times it has to do with lawmakers. You know, we got these, mm-hmm. this ancient 80 year old man is making a decision for, <laughs> for women's bodies. You'll hear stuff like that, you know, and um, yeah. when I hear that, I, I see kind of the sarcasm in it, but I also wonder, uh, you mentioned Roe v. Wade, you know, which was decided by uh, men, as far as I understand, like nine Supreme Court men or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So can they not have opinions on it or make decisions on it that would be helpful for women? Do you think it's just a you don't have as much compassion? Um, you know, what, what do you think? I, I just kind of want to open that up because yeah. I do hear that thrown around a lot. When, when men are ever involved in this, it gets a little touchy. So I'd like both of your take. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I think at the end of the day, again, in a perfect world, family planning decisions should be made by the person who's pregnant, their partner, and their healthcare provider. But we don't live in a perfect world. I think it's it's very personal. You know, where do men fit in the picture? I think that it's not my place to say, if that makes sense. You know, I think it's like, it should be a case-by-case situation. And I think if the case is one where a woman and her partner are in a healthy relationship and she doesn't fear reprisal from her partner in terms of you know, physical or mental abuse, financial abuse, then they should make that together. But that's an area where I think the government should not be involved. I think that's a place where everyone should have access to safe and legal health care. But the decision making, at the end of the day, the woman is the one who's going to have to carry that pregnancy to term or not and is going to have to deal with the Potentially death. I hate to say it. I know that sounds very dramatic, but mm-hmm. but truly, if you look at the maternal health statistics in our country, that is what a woman could potentially be facing. Mm-hmm. And I have a hard time thinking of any other health condition where we would ask someone else to be involved. But it is it's tricky. I could see the other side of like, you know, if there's the potential for new life and and that life, you know, genetically is someone else's fifty percent. I, I could see that question mark coming up. But I think at the end of the day, because that woman or pregnant person is the one who's going to have to bear the the highest level of risk and highest level of responsibility, then they are the one who gets the final say. That's how I feel. For sure. And in terms of just male lawmakers, I guess, because that's the part that I always find uh, a bit funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people just say that, you know, they say men are making the decision. Yeah. And to me, it was like, well, you know, a lot of the, your doctors are men. A lot of your lawmakers were men and Roe v. Wade. So I, I, mm-hmm. that's something that has never quite made sense to me. Do you see that or no? I see it. I mean, I think it's it's frustrating for many women to see that, um, you know, it's it's not just a matter of like men are making this decision or not. It's the it's a global issue of like if you look at the number of people in Congress who the number of people in other positions of power, they are more often men than women. And I can see the frustration thinking like you will never be in that position. You will never be the one to get pregnant. You will never be the one to deal with you know, going to all the doctor's appointments, potentially having a serious life-threatening complication, having people judge you because you look pregnant if you're, you know, in the workplace or in a setting, you shouldn't be like, you will never go through that. You will never truly know what that's like. And this is a time more than any other time when if men are to be involved in the decision-making, I think they need to be involved in a place of support and compassion and not in a place of judgment or blame or restriction. It's just, it's just not fair. <laughs> I do think that's where, where my personal judgment and morals comes in is like, what is fair? What is, what is compassionate and what is right? And it, I can see that not, it doesn't feel right, you know, to have men in positions of power, putting restrictions on women's bodies. Yeah. Lynn, what do you think? Have you have a, any take on that? I mean, I completely agree with everything Julia said, like, especially like from my experience, Every one of the men who helped get me pregnant were not there. That was the extent of their responsibility. You know, yeah. Yeah. They were there for the sex. They weren't there after. So, yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's like we ultimately have to go through everything. Like I said, I was hospitalized my during my second pregnancy for two weeks. I fell down the stairs pregnant while yes. I had my one-year-old, like, you know, waiting for me. And it's like, if you're alone like pregnancy is a, like a long-term health mm-hmm. issue like you're literally having something happen to your body sure. for a long time and yeah. to not have any support it, it is just it is very difficult 
And like Julia said, like men just wouldn't ever have to go through it. Like, it's painful for me to listen to all this, but that's kind of what the position I wanted to put myself in. Yeah, through this I mean, podcast mm-hmm. was to to hear all of the grievances uh, <laughs> that women have because I'm sometimes blind to that. And and I'm not man bashing like like sure, Julia no, said. There's plenty yeah. of amazing men. Like my husband's amazing. Um, like takes care of children that weren't his. But there's a lot of men out there that just want to have that power or sure. just want to. Or, I mean, especially, I can't imagine how many men are in power and have all who are against abortion, but have had, you know, mm-hmm. women have abortions. You know, that's brought up yeah. a lot. Everyone loves a hypocrite. If you can find, yes, it seems if you... like very hypocritical. <laughs> if you can afford it and you don't want to look bad because you cheated on your wife or something, you can, you can have it done. But, yeah. but then you're against it for other people, and yeah, that's scary. I remember like a couple elections ago and people were talking about it a lot and talking about reversing Roe versus Wade. And I was terrified for women, Hmm. like not even myself, because at this time in my life, I could deal with another baby if I actually wanted to have one, but I was terrified for everybody else. Like, Oh my gosh. Like terrified partially because the support and the other frameworks to help are not there. Yeah. They're not there to not, like Julia said, it without all that, I mean, just period, not even like maternal health. Like I have a special needs son who I've been trying to get help for for years. And like, we keep running into roadblocks and mm-hmm. it's like, so it's like on every level, maternal, mental, like everything, there's just not enough supports out there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think there, the thing is, is like, we make it look so easy right? Like parenting is a different experience for everyone. I'm a parent and I know I have, I'm really lucky. I have a really great job. I have great insurance. I have family support and it is still the hardest job I've ever done Mm -hmm. in my life. Hardest thing. Mm -hmm. And I love my son. I'm thankful that we have him. Um, We've decided not to have any more children because it's really it's really hard. And I think it's not something to be taken lightly. And sure. it's not something some people, you know, love having kids and they'll have six kids and want to keep going. And and if they can do it and they have the support they need to do it, God bless them. Because like we're talking about raising the next generation on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's a big responsibility. And sure. uh, we don't want to take it lightly. And we see the consequences of what happens when people bring children into the world and they're not ready or they're not capable or they don't have the support they need. And it hurts children. I think especially after becoming a parent, thinking about things like childhood trauma and, you know, a lot of the, the adverse experiences that kids go through that set them up for a harder time later in life. Like that to me is very, very sad. And I think we want to give everyone their best shot to become, you know, a healthy well-functioning, stable human being that can contribute to the world. And that's where I think for me, like all this comes back to that is like, how do we raise good humans? And we raise Mm -hmm. good humans by supporting their parents and making sure they have what they need to give their kids all the love and support that they they need. It's I guess where my like my value system comes back to about all of this. Sure. Is raising good human beings at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, and I now I want to get into probably the most difficult thing I think, which is when you try to define uh, what the unborn is. Uh, mm. I, I actually think this is the core kind of question about this, but I wanted to first let you guys talk about your side of it and the female side of it because I feel like that gets pushed to the side, and the part that I'm going to ask now is always the first thing. So I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to lopside the conversation and, and pour out all of the <laughs> first, all of the things that women <laughs> go through, because I think that as a pro-life person, that's the thing that I thought less about. And I want to force myself to hear all that and think about that. But so the question of just what is the unborn is very controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just a question of if this is a human person, innocent human person, then the same rights should apply as it would to the mother, to the father, to everyone. And um, mm-hmm. I think it's a fairly non-religious, uh, fairly scientific argument. Um, and, and basically, that's kind of what I come down to. But I've noticed that the definition of when, <laughs> when life begins, all that kind of stuff, is very uh, you know, controversial, and there's a lot of different takes on it. So I kind of wanted to let you guys, if you have a take on this, um, I'd love mm-hmm. to to hear your side on it because that's kind of the core for me is, you know, if this mm-hmm. is truly a human person, 
then I think the law should be consistent. It should it should just be the same as, you know, ending anyone's life, the mother's life, the father's life, anyone. And the reasons people would give of financial difficulty or, you know, all of these horrible things that are real things that women go through would still not rise to the level of uh, murder. You know, and I know that's uncomfortable to talk about, but that that's kind of where I come from. Mm-hmm. So I, I just kind of, kind of want to get both of your take on that, if you have a take. And, um, you know, because I've heard uh, people draw the line at consciousness and draw the line at feeling pain. And, you know, uh, mm. Lynn, Lynn, you had mentioned, a, you know, your your term whenever you walked into the clinic was four weeks or something like that. Three weeks. Three yes. weeks. Yeah. So I, I just kind of want to get your this is almost more of a technical question, but that's why I wanted to save it for yeah. closer to the end. What, what's your take on this? I mean, I personally don't feel like I have a right to have an opinion. I don't know if that's the right wording. Mm. Um. If I had to think, I would say when that being or fetus can live without me, then that is when its own life begins. Like, that's what Mm. I think I would consider. Um, Up until then, it needs me to live and to survive. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's when it would be. Like, if that baby could be delivered or, like, there could be a C-section and it survived, Mm. Then, mm-hmm. then that is life to me. Kind um, of the level of dependence. I mean, yeah. to a degree. I mean, I think if you know you're pregnant for like eight months and then, but that doesn't happen. Like, that's the thing. Like, most abortions mm. happen early on. Like, they're not happening mm-hmm. when the baby's formed in the belly. Sure. Like, it's showed in most of the pictures and posters. <laughs> like, it's not like that. Um, like, Sorry, that was an uncomfortable laugh there because I know exactly the pictures you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, that's not what it looks like. Like, literally, it looked like a freaking tap. I'm sorry, I shouldn't use, like, harsh language. It <laughs> well, looked like you, a tadpole or something. Say, it's say even, whatever you want. You know, like, yeah, I mean, it just was, it's not anything like that. I mean, sure, there might be some that happen or slip through the cracks. But for the most part, by then, I, I don't even know it's the like, legality yeah. of that. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, but, but the times that most people are getting them, it's like it doesn't even look like a, like a human yet. Sure. And that's what I mean. It it seems like different people draw the line at different points. You know, even while you're saying Mm -hmm. that, you're kind of drawing a line of, you know, how it looks or whether it's dependent enough uh, on the mother and those kind of questions. And for me, um, well, you know what? I'll I'll save my take. I want to hear what Julia has to say on that, too. Yeah. So I think what what I heard, at least when I was pregnant, the term people use was viability, I think, is like when is viability of Mm. the fetus survivable outside of the mother and on like the flip side if you're pregnant and as I was like very worried about like the health and well-being of your fetus you were Mm. wondering like okay when can I get to that point of like I think it's in the second trimester at some point maybe 20 some weeks or 24 like when if something happened and you had to deliver the baby early it would be able to survive you know with the help of medical technology Mm. um and that's, you know, I think it is hard because I think kind of like what Lynn was saying and, you know, what you were saying too, Brad, we don't, I don't think we as a society have consensus on when life begins. Sure. I think everyone has their own feelings on it. And so it makes it a tough question to answer and it makes it a tough question to legislate mm-hmm. um, because we don't have a common um, agreement. Right. And, and so that's challenging. I think yeah. like for me personally, I will I will just add this. It's not really an answer to your question, no, which fine. maybe is hard. But I think I think about the whole spectrum of pregnancy outcomes. You know, a piece we don't talk about here is miscarriage. And miscarriage is right. very common. Mm-hmm. It happens for a lot of reasons. A lot of times, just that particular pregnancy wasn't going to be viable. I went through um, two myself mm-hmm. and um, before having our son. And um I think, you know, the way that I've looked at it, I know Michelle Obama has talked about her experience having a miscarriage in her autobiography and mm. is that, you know, that just wasn't meant to be. And that some people do look at that of like, that's God's way of saying, okay, this, this baby wasn't meant to be. And so I think, it, I guess from a practical perspective, because abortions typically happen earlier um, for a number of reasons, but I think a lot of times it might just work itself out. I hate to say it that way. And that sounds really callous, but but if, if the the time for a pregnancy to be viable is more in the second trimester, I could see that being the time when it could be considered more controversial to terminate a pregnancy mm-hmm. after that point. And I, I do think that, like, in my experience, when I've heard about stories of women who have abortions in the second or third trimester, um, there are many cases when people 
are doing that because there's something really wrong with the the fetus. And I think that's another piece that there are people who really want to have a baby and really try and go through a lot. Mm -hmm. And then they have a bad outcome and they're getting an abortion because they, they know that that child's life is going to result in a lot of pain or um, Mm -hmm. you just say that they won't survive. And, And I have tremendous respect for the people. There was a woman in my mom's group who had, I think it was trisomy 18 or 19. I forget which one it was mm-hmm. where the baby was only going to live a few days and, and they, she carried the pregnancy to term and they had a beautiful, you know, celebration of life while the baby yeah. was alive for the few days, but you could tell there was no way it was going to make it. Right. And so I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through that sure. and make that decision of terminating or caring to term. Right. And then, seeing that baby for a few days and then having to say goodbye. I just, I can't imagine. And so I think that's why it's so personal. It's really hard to legislate because everyone has strong feelings about it. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard. hard I've been to to a funeral for a miscarried baby also. And that was interesting that, Mm. you know, that, and I I think the miscarriage, as much as I, you know, I'll say my, my pro-life take on that is I wish that we could somehow swoop in there and, and avoid that. But that's sort of an, a, uh, I don't want to say it's a natural thing, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's a thing that's happening. You know, it's nobody's intention right. to do that. And so I think it's less controversial because, you know, it's not a question of whether someone is doing this on purpose. Right, um, right. The way that abortion is. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, in both of you, you know, you, you seem to draw the line, you know, where you draw the line. And I think that's the, the big question here and why I think it's it's ripe for conversation is, People draw it at different points. You know, people talk about personhood, mm, which feels mm-hmm. even more philosophical, and and it gets really into some some deep deep questions. Um, so I think it's you know it's it's great to admit that those can be difficult questions. I guess I usually come down on if it is a doubt or if it is a question, then I'd rather err on the cautious side. And of course, as I say that, I have to also admit that the fallout of that has a lot of implications for women. So if you know if I'm going to say I think this is a an innocent human uh, right from conception and I and I do think there's a case to be made for that. Um, mm. people talk about, you know, <laughs> when when parents are trying to get pregnant, that's the moment they celebrate, you know, is when mm-hmm. that happens because they know okay mm-hmm. something has started. And, and you know, when we draw lines, I worry that sometimes these lines could be a, a double standard in, in a sense because if you apply the same to a person outside the womb, you know, people would generally agree that wouldn't be a good thing if you said, well, this person can't survive without a tube or, you know, this person is uh, is smaller in stature or they, you know, or they have some deformity or these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We generally wouldn't regard them as any less of a human. And so I guess I look at it as trying to apply equal standards across the board. But I, I would prefer a lot of the conversation to revolve around that question mm. because I feel like most things fall from there. Okay, once we determine this, we we kind of can make a path forward. Um, yeah, it's so hard though because I think where I struggle with this, Brad, is that we talk a lot of maternal health about the mother-baby dyad and the fact that you cannot separate the mother from the baby, mm. certainly during pregnancy. And, and arguably for the first three months of the baby's life because they're sure. bonded physically, sure. you know, and, um, and that's why it's so hard to like do an apples to apples comparison with, um, you know, yeah. an adult human being who's already, you know, been out of the womb. Right, right. But it's, it's, I, I see, I can see why you would want to do that. And I, it makes total sense to me, but it's, it, it's like a different situation altogether and a unique situation because mm-hmm. there's no other situation I can think of in the human <laughs> experience that's like this, sure, you know, sure. like when you're, when you're aging and you're making the decision around life sustaining interventions with tubes uh-huh, and, right. and technology, right. you, there's parallels, but it's different. And I think it's, mm-hmm. um, it's really hard. I, I think it's like, you don't want to see the slippery slope go either way. Like you don't want to see a slippery slope where I think I've heard people who identify as pro-life say like, well, what if you, you know, kind of the eugenics thing of like, you choose to have an abortion because of the basis of sex or race Uh or deformities or or genetic conditions. And, you know, there are people who have children with Down syndrome who are very concerned about like that becoming normalized. And, and it's just such a spectrum of outcomes. I think it's like, for me, like, I think our personal decision-making, like when we decided to start having a family, we talked about like, what would the child's quality of life be if it was an X, Y, or Z situation? Like, what would the situation be 
Right. And that guided our decision-making around family planning, you know, like what would we do if there was a situation we could, you know, didn't know how to handle. Yeah. It's funny. I have a friend who him and his wife, they'd made the decision already. They were going to have the baby no matter what, but the doctor came Mm -hmm. in and said, you know, your baby may have down syndrome and may have these Mm -hmm. issues. And so I'm going to leave the room and I'm going to give you guys a certain amount of time to discuss it. And mm-hmm. so he left the room and he just turned to her and said, you want to make out? So <laughs> I, I enjoyed that because it was like they had sort of decided ahead of time like, yeah. And yeah. what's interesting about that story is she didn't end up with these uh, difficulties. She's super, yeah. super brilliant and is like uh, in the top ranks of a uh, brick and mortar store company and, and deciding all these things. And so it's interesting how some of that was kind of like a guess of, of what would happen. But it, had they done that, it would have been wrong, you know, uh, like it would have been the wrong um information so right i find that kind of interesting too but i always laughed at that story i don't know well technology is imperfect it's like we rely a lot on sonograms and things like that and it is not 100 percent accurate so i think it should be part of the conversation but people should be informed that like (laughs) it's not 100 percent, and that's it's that's a perfect case of that is like we have to be able to rely on our intuition and our values in addition to technology when we're making these decisions for our family Mm -hmm. and lynn you were saying something there Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that the same thing happened um, with me, with my first son. Uh, they told me that he might have Down syndrome right. and asked me if I wanted to keep him or not. And like I said, at that time, I was like totally against like, I'm like, heck no, like I'm having this baby. I... He ended up not having Down syndrome then you're saying? Yeah, he ended up not having Down syndrome. Okay. Um, I just wanted to see if I am able to bring something up so I don't forget it or. Yeah, sure. And, and um, real quick before we do that, Julia, you said you had a hard out at one thirty. Are you are you okay, or you need to go? I think I can go for a few more minutes. My son has not woken up yet. <laughs> okay, so why don't we do this then? Why don't I sort of let Julia close out if she had anything? Um, okay. Would that be okay? Yep. Okay, so Julia, is there anything else that you want to leave people with, or or ask me, or? I just touch on real quick before you head out. No, I mean I, I appreciate this conversation. I wish it could have been in person, and yeah. um, and thank you. I really appreciate your approach and like listening to the other side and trying to get like some understanding. And I think that's where a lot of this for me comes down is that like people often rush to judgment or they think about this is what I would do and so this is what everyone should do. Mm. And I think you know, we could all benefit from more of this, like slowing down and listening to the other side. And I've appreciated some of the things you've shared too, because it is such a personal topic and we don't have a good consensus on all of these things. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. And yeah, I've gathered so much information from both of you that I had not even thought of before. So I really appreciate it. So I'm going to let you go if that's okay. And uh, and then, Lynn, if you want to stick around, we can address a few more things. And uh, I, thank you, uh, Julia. Thank you again. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Julia. Are you still there, Lynn? Yes. Yeah. So you had said that you wanted to uh, say something before you forgot. I want to give you a chance to <laughs> jump back in there. Just something that I feel like is left out of the equation a lot is I'll hear people say, well, you could put the baby up for adoption. There are so many children in, in the system that need to be adopted. Mm. So many children in the foster care system. I wish the people who considered them, you know, the pro-life side, yeah. if they would look at that too and try to help that part of things mm-hmm. and to where, you know, somebody who was pregnant and thought they could carry to term and put a baby up for adoption, that that would actually be a healthy, safe, mm-hmm. safe thing to do because mm-hmm. there are so many people who need homes who end up growing up without them. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually forgot to bring that up. And that to me feels like a system that needs reformed, you know, like Julia was talking about a lot of these healthcare issues. Yeah, I mean, I actually hope to adopt someday. I mm. hope to adopt older children someday when when we have a bigger home oh, or, cool. you know, more financially stable, you know, like I, I would love to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just not even a really good option for a pregnant woman because like if I was pregnant today and thinking about that, I'd think, wow, well, what if they end up just in like some abusive foster care family with 20 other kids and yeah, never knowing what it's like to have a mom or dad. Mm. Yeah. I think that's worth bringing up because yeah, it is often portrayed as like a magic button that you can press and then you see a bumper sticker that says abortion scratched out and it says adoption. Well, it may not be uh, the smoothest, easiest process for a lot of people. And so, yeah, we, I I think all that stuff needs to be uh, dealt with. 
I really appreciate your time. I, I wanted to let you kind of pour out everything you could that maybe, you know, pro-life people listening have not heard. Uh, people like myself, you know, I've certainly, like I said, not considered a lot of these issues. And I, and I want to hear the, the personal side. Um, was there anything that you had uh, that you still wanted to address or, um, or questions for me or, or things that you want pro-life people to know? Anything like that? Um, just that I'm not anti-life. I'm not anti-baby. <laughs> like, like I love the children that I do have. Um, but that, yeah, I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. Like I, I didn't. So it's not like it was something I was excited about, like, but I didn't feel like I had a choice because like you said of the word that's been talked about the most and is support, lack of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, and I feel like people, would usually say stuff like, well, you shouldn't have sex and this and that. And it's like, well, once again, if like, I only knew what I knew, like I wasn't, right. I wasn't taught how to do things differently. So it's like, well, yeah, there's an assumption in that statement that everyone has the same sexual uh, education or ethics, you know, when yes. people say that, cause I, I kind of have been in that boat too, where I've thought, well, you know, when, you know, when you have sex that, you know, uh, sort of the risks and you know, these things, but there's a lot uh, that, maybe people don't know and there's a lot of role modeling that's not done i know you said you know your own examples of things that people were doing around you you know um growing up had an impact and and that kind of stuff so yeah i think that's fair to say is that uh not everybody has the same experience you know yeah all right well i'm gonna let you have your time back if that's uh yeah um, i think sorry go ahead (laughs) oh i was just gonna say thank you i appreciate your approach to this you made it very comfortable i was nervous (laughs) Okay, yeah, that to me is the biggest success. If we can have a comfortable conversation about an uncomfortable thing, then I think I think we did something good. But uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming on here and doing that. I think it it was it did take some courage. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> All right, bye bye.